Ronaldinho to Messi. Will he get that first goal for Barcelona? Remember the name, Lionel Messi, at the age of 17, scores his first goal for Barcelona. Back to Mbappé! What a great day it's been for him! Oh, spectacular Thiago! Alan, very accomplished player himself, and Alan in behind goes for goal! Hello and welcome to Pure Fit Boys Euro 2020 preview. I'm your host, Alistair Madden, and as ever, this podcast will be in-depth, unbiased and Scottish. In this series, we will look to understand each of the nations at the tournament this summer and break down playing style, key players and expectations. On the show today, we will be reviewing England, and to do so, I am delighted to say that I'm joined by... Ali Maxwell. Ali is an English Football League pundit for Sky and Quest, and he's also the presenter on several podcasts on The Athletic, including the excellent Zonal Marking podcast with Michael Cox, one of my favourite podcasts, mate. I add, uh, Ali, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Really, really good to be on. Uh, always love all of the PF content. Uh, I don't actually say the name of the podcast out loud because it doesn't sound very good in, in my accent compared to yours but no brilliant to be with you uh, and I should say although I'm representing the enemy and uh, obviously Scotland's group rivals England uh, my uh, grandfather Charles Maxwell was born in Fife so there you go I've got some uh, I've got some strong Scottish roots and I've got a ginger beard when that grows out as well if that helps that absolutely helps Ali absolutely helps yeah great to have you on Ali I'm going to just ask you to cast your mind back all the way to to the qualifiers, the qualifi- mm. qualification route for the Euros. Um, I think we probably know the answer to this, but if you could just maybe give me a, a wee bit more detail beyond the usual, we expected to qualify, it'd be quite good. Mm. What was the expectation going into these qualifiers for England, Ali? So to win every game and, and win it comfortably is number one. Uh, prior to... The qualification for Euro 2020, which I guess is what we're calling it still, even though it's taking place in the summer of 2021. Uh, England's record in, in qualifying for the five previous major tournaments was 38 wins, nine draws and one defeat. And we'd won all five of those groups uh, qualifying for the five previous major tournaments. So uh, obviously, as you as you mentioned, the, the expectation was to win the group. Um And I guess from my point of view, the expectation and the hope was also to take what had happened at the World Cup in 2018 and take the the good aspects of the team that reached the semi-final, but certainly to develop a new style as well, to develop into a better all-round team uh, and to start to introduce this group of insanely talented young players that England seem to be blessed with in, in a way that you know, I'm not the sort of person that calls for five teenagers to be chucked into the England squad straight away because I, I understand that realistically that's unlikely and you have to have respect for those who, who have you know already started their England careers. So I think for me, I wanted them to be introduced in a in a in a positive way, but a realistic way. And then, yeah, I feel a bit sad. It almost sounds a bit arrogant to say, but because of England's record in qualifiers, qualifying I think from an England perspective has become a bit of a non-event, something that people aren't that interested in. Um, It's fine because England have a very good record, but that good record 
seems to be very rarely predictive of how England will do in a major tournament. Uh, and I think those two things combined means there is a, a general apathy towards the playoffs, uh, towards the qualifiers, I should say, um, among many. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's something certainly up in Scotland when you look on social media. I mean, I speak to my friends in England that, you know, it does come through as quite palpable, that apathy. As you say, let's look now at the performances, both going into the qualifiers and during them. How would you describe those performances, Ali? Yeah, well, England were great in qualifying. And it sounds like after what I just said, that was expected. But in the World Cup in 2018, England had had some real issues with creating chances from open play. And if you look back at the qualifying for the World Cup in 2018, they'd qualified top of their group. They'd played 10 games. They'd only scored 18 goals, so 1.8 per game, and they'd conceded three. So England's games were not particularly exciting. They were not particularly high scoring. This playoff, sorry, I keep saying playoffs because I'm used to talking about the EFL playoffs, but this qualifying campaign, England scored 37 goals in their eight games, which is almost five per game, only conceding six. So maintain that good defensive record. England scored four twice, five, three times, six goals once and seven goals uh, in another. So they were brilliant and they'd, they'd improved as attacking team. That was very, very noticeable. And the way they were scoring goals looked very different to how they'd played previously. Kane was brilliant. I think he was the top goal scorer in Euros qualifying. He scored 12 uh, and set up five. Sterling scored eight and set up nine. So the numbers were were exceptional. Of course, the group, the opposition was not the strongest. The, they, they did lose one game, England, to Czech Republic. But that game's now over 18 months ago. There has been a lot of changes, both in terms of personnel, a lot of changes and tweaks in terms of style of play, of course, the pandemic and everything that that's impacted. So there's a part of me that thinks Euros qualifying, which finished in November of 2019, feels quite far away. And, and perhaps the UEFA Nations League games, which have taken place uh, in the uh, international breaks at the start of this season, are probably a bit more pertinent. So just to run you through England's performances there, they played six games over three international breaks in September, October and November with mixed results. Certainly not the success and all the goals of the qualifying campaign. Uh, England beat Iceland twice. Uh, they won one and lost one against Belgium, which seems about par. Uh, and then they drew one and lost one against Denmark, which was obviously disappointing. And I would say as well that the performances were as concerning as the, the results themselves. Both games, England were very poor. Uh, the one that they lost, they did go down to 10 men after half an hour, which obviously had a pretty good, pretty big impact. So qualifying was great, you know, racking up the goals, playing good stuff. But I'd say the fairly iffy Nations League performance is probably fresher in my mind uh, than that qualifying group one at a canter. So that, that's my positivity slightly tempered. Yeah. And with those more recent performances in mind, how... Do you expect the team to perform at the Euros this summer in that group, of course, with Scotland, Croatia and Czech Republic? Yeah, I think looking at the group, it's obvious that England are, are clear favourites to progress, which comes with its own pressure. They're also favourites to win the tournament, which I think is quite surprising. Uh, in, in Group D, as you say, with Croatia, Czech Republic and Scotland, it, it would be, you know, each of those games has a, has a little something, you know, uh, something of different sizes riding on it. For Croatia, it's kind of a, a footballing demon 
uh, after losing to them in the World Cup semi-final in 2018. I suppose they'd be considered the, the, the second strongest team on paper. They've got that really experienced core um, of, of, of top-level players, a lot of good midfield players, especially. Even with Rakitic, who's, who's retired from international football, you're still looking at a midfield of Modric and, and Kovacic uh, and plenty of other good players as well. I don't know a huge amount about their new generation, but I do know that their, you know, their under-21s team has been strong for a few years now. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are some, some younger Croatian players that, that you know, Hope, hope will be looking to perform well against England and, and maybe put themselves on the map a bit. The Scotland game is just going to be a, an incredible occasion, isn't it? Um, just in general and for all <laughs> facets on and off the pitch. And Czech Republic, as I mentioned, beat England in qualifying. So you'd hope that England will be wise to their game and, and, and sort of overcome whatever issues they had there. They, they should be, on paper, able to impose a level of footballing dominance on all three teams. But... I find it quite hard to imagine that that's how it will play out. I don't think it will be as simple as that. I envisage quite a lot of frustration trying to break down teams setting up in a low block, which mm-hmm. tends to lead to nervousness in possession. These are all traits that you'd recognise from England in, in recent big tournaments. I don't predict a huge amount of chance creation from open play, but hopefully they'll maintain the same set-piece threat, um, which we'll probably come on to in a bit, which is a big feature of their game. So, look, I... England should be finishing first in the group. I think they probably will finish first in the group if they were to get two wins. But cynically, Alistair, it might not be the best plan because in prepping for this, I took a decent look at the sort of road to the final after the groups. And Mm -hmm. the team that wins Group D will play the team that finishes second in Group F. And Group F is the group of death with Germany, Mm -hmm. France, Portugal and Hungary. Now, I don't think England would fancy facing either or any of those teams in the round of 16. Whereas if they finish second, then the, the, the second place Group D team will play the second place Group E team. And Group E, as you guys all know, is Spain, Sweden, Poland and Slovakia. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's dangerous trying to second guess this. But England, if they come second, I guess the favourite, you know, that the most probable opponent would be Sweden. And if they win the group, the most probable opponent would be France or Germany. So it's it's a bit of a cynical way of looking at it, but it worked for England at the World Cup in 2018 when they lost to Belgium in the last group game. They finished second and they were on the easier side of the draw. Um, regardless, um, you know, they're going to have to hit that France, Germany, Portugal gang in the quarterfinals either way. And I think that the thing that I wanted to flag up about the, the group stage, which England have struggled with in the past, is those three games and the opponents that England have got they're going to be so different to anything they approach in the latter stages if they get there. And mm-hmm. that's a big thing for Gareth Southgate to, to work on, which perhaps he didn't do so well in 2018. The general pattern of play and the quality of the oppositions and the the ambitiousness of the opposition game plans are so different in the group stage compared to the knockout games that in my head, it's almost two separate three-game tournaments, if you know what I mean. So hopefully England get past the first bit and then we can worry about the second bit later. But that's what Gareth Southgate needs to be planning for. In terms of the national mood, Ali, how would you describe that? How are people in England viewing the Euros and the team's prospects this summer? Yeah, I think we're a funny set of fans, really, because I think there tends to be a general undercurrent of pessimism generally around the t- around the team, outside any major tournament and in the lead up to most major tournaments. I don't think there's 
there's obviously excitement at the tournament itself and what that means and a, a summer of watching tournament football. But in England terms, I, I don't get the feeling that people are buzzing, shall we say, about England's prospects. But we turn around pretty quickly. We go the other way very, very quickly. It, uh, it only takes about two wins in the groups and maybe one knockout win for, for mm-hmm. everyone to get very excited. Mm-hmm. I think the best way I can put it is, I think if you told every single England fan that England are favourites for the Euros with the certainly the English bookmakers that I've seen, I think the main reaction would be surprise and confusion rather than, yes, that's right, it's our time. I, I still think there are quite a lot of question marks over this team. Let's focus now on the manager, Gareth Southgate. How would you describe Southgate's playing style and his tactics with this England team? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? With with international football, I think you have to try and look at it in a slightly different tactical lens, um, much less contact time, training time, um, very different style of play uh, to club football, a different speed of play as well. And I think that can mean that trying to apply the sort of standards that you expect in terms of style of play at club level onto international level often ends up with the the international teams sort of not comparing very well, if you know what I mean. So I, I'm, I'm kind of going to sit on the fence because I'm not sure there's a definitive style under Southgate, um, which you might think is quite concerning given he's been in charge for three or four years now. But... <sighs> I can't work out if he's flexible tactically or inflexible tactically. I can't I can't quite work out if I trust mm-hmm. him to make the right changes, um, mm-hmm. you know, depending on opposition or, or, or even in-game itself. But uh, just to just to flag up a few things to anyone listening who hasn't followed England tactically very closely. In the World Cup in 2018, they played a three-at-the-back system, 3-4-2-1, where the two behind uh, Harry Kane were not wide players. They were free eights, I guess you might call them. And it was Deli mm-hmm. Ali and Jesse Lingard, which three years later now seems crazy because I wouldn't be surprised if neither of those players make the squad itself and they were both nailed on starters. So obviously that team did well in the tournament, got to the semi-finals. In terms of tactically, there were some good aspects to it. You know, they were they were mostly solid at the back, but England were never much of a threat in possession. Um they scored almost all of their goals from set pieces. And then there was going to be this sort of evolution um, in Euros qualifying for this tournament. It was three four three, and those three eights that I mentioned became goal scoring wide forwards in the form of of two of the three of Sterling, Sancho, and Rashford. And Harry Kane and his development over the last few years, where he's he's got a, a lot better at dropping deeper and linking play, turned into a brilliant creator as well as being a world class goal scorer. He was excellent in qualifying, not just scoring the majority of England's goals, but probably their most creative passer as well. And with those pacey, skillful wide forwards running in behind, it was working really well. It was exciting to watch. And and as mentioned, we scored a lot of goals. And then in the Nations League in late 2020, it was still 3-4-3. But England really struggled, um, particularly in build-up play from the back, which they tend to have to do because teams don't tend to press England very much. So their their centre-backs have a lot of the ball. And with an issue in terms of a a dearth of international level left-footed centre-backs that England have, and with Luke Shaw and Ben Chilwell absent, there were a few really tough games to watch where there was a back three of right-footed centre-backs playing passes into two right-footed defensive midfield players. And every time it went out to the left, we had the right-footed Kieran Trippier playing left wing-back, and it was all funnelling back to each other. It was difficult to watch. So then we've seen a little bit of a, of a development 
just in the last three games in the latest international break, which was World Cup qualifying. Southgate went 4-3-3. A lot of people have been calling for this. With so many attacking talents, it, it although it sounds basic, taking someone out of the defensive line and putting someone higher up the pitch was a popular choice. And I think with players like Declan Rice, who's become indispensable, Jordan Henderson and Calvin Phillips as well, all able to play in deep midfield roles, um, both in terms of, of picking the ball up off the defence, but also providing protection for them. I think that has solved a, a, the build-up issue to a certain extent. Uh, Mason Mount's emergence has really helped with that. He, I suppose he was the one who benefited from the switch from 3-4-3 to 4-3-3. He's now playing a, a sort of fairly fluid advanced midfield role and he seems to suit it really well. So I'd, I'd say England are largely defensively solid, no matter what system they play, but not elite defensively. I, I think there are some big question marks about some of England's defenders when they're actually put under proper pressure from a high-quality opposition. Yeah, you've touched on it, Virali, in terms of this next question. Are there any tactical strengths or weaknesses that we should expect when watching England? Mm, well, I suppose... I don't, even, I don't know if it's a tactical weakness, probably more of a personnel weakness. But as I alluded to there, I, I think as as much as I admire Harry Maguire, John Stones, Kyle Walker, uh, Reese James, I think each of England's defenders have the potential to make defensive errors, which could undermine England in uh, in tight knockout games. In terms of the strength, well, <laughs> it seems strange given the array of star names, but the first strength to consider if you've not been watching closely, is a, is an incredible set-piece threat. Um, at that World Cup in 2018, England scored 12 goals total, nine of them from set plays. A couple of those were penalties, but only three goals from open play in, what was it, six games. Uh, one of which was a long shot against Panama that deflected off Harry Kane's heel and flew into the top corner completely, like with complete fortune. So with some really good set-piece takers, and, and whether it's by luck, or by one of the coaches having really good set-piece routines. Um, they've developed a reputation for it, and I think it does scare the opposition. So I would say that's one of England's big, um, you know, biggest threats, really, just set-piece, uh, that set-piece threat. And I think in open play, or in general play, at, at their best in the last two years, as I said, it, it, was, it was mostly about speedy, skillful, goal-scoring wide forwards running in behind onto passes, mostly from, from Harry Kane, to be honest with you. But the problem heading into the, the Euros is that's slightly at odds as a team strength with a team that's likely to have two thirds of the ball for most of these games, certainly in the group stages. So the big question that Southgate has is, if you're going to play 4-3-3, do you go with, like I think the back four and two mostly defensive minded or deep sitting midfielders is going to be a given. So do you go with the goal scoring wide forwards of Sterling, Sancho and Rashford? who are completely different players to the new band of exciting midfield players, which are Foden and Grealish, for example. You have to work out a way to, to, to almost go horses for courses, I think, with this group of players. And maybe there'll have to be an understanding from the fans that there might be some proper rotation. I would like to see that. But if Kane is your striker and his skill at the moment is in dropping deep and playing those balls to Son and then... Is it better off having Sterling and Sancho and Rashford or a Foden or a Grealish? Probably those those more speedy wide forwards, even though Foden and Grealish are so exceptionally good. So maybe there's a balance that that uh, Southgate can find. Maybe one of the wide forwards could be a Foden and or sorry, a Foden or Grealish. 
and maybe the other side you'd have more of the the, the goal threat that I've spoken about. I think in a video game world, Alistair, you'd have two distinct match plans for the different opposition and take that horses for courses approach. Mm-hmm. You know, the speedy wide forwards to exploit uh, to exploit eh, exploit space in behind higher lines and Foden and Grealish to break down the low blocks. But I don't know whether that's realistic. And just lastly, Southgate's copped a bit of flack at times for for a lack of tactical um, response, like reactiveness during games. That semi-final against Croatia, particularly, it felt inevitable for everyone watching that Croatia would score from a cross from the right-hand side unless Southgate did something to stop it, and he didn't, and they did. So uh, a big question mark over the manager is, can he be flexible in his ideas and how he gets his points across to the team. Absolutely. Ali, just looking at some of those key players, you've mentioned quite a few players who could make an impact this summer, but if you had to pick one player, who would you highlight as the player who really makes this England team tick? Yeah, it's it's the obvious one, I think. It's Harry Kane. Uh, he's the captain of the team. He is, when he's fit, surely one of the top five strikers in the world. Uh, and maybe there'd be some who could narrow that down to, to three. He's he's sensational. Uh, and what's so exciting is that not only has he got a great goal record for England, 34 in 53 caps, um, but as mentioned, he really has developed his all-round game over the last few years. So I think he's the perfect modern-day number nine for a system uh, where you just have the one up top. Um, and I think the difference in quality put it this way between Kane and his replacement Dominic Calvert-Lewin uh, or potentially Ollie Watkins but probably Calvert-Lewin is is the, uh, the 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 sort of second number nine in the depth chart I think that's the biggest jump in quality that England have in any position so I think it has to be Kane um, if England are going to do anything in these Euros this summer Kane might well be the man who 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 fires them to victory and, and wins the golden boot like he did uh, in Russia in 2018. Do you think there are any players who could potentially have a breakthrough tournament for England this summer, Ali? Yeah, I have I have to admit, I could have basically named half the squad here because mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. as everyone knows, England are very lucky to have this group of young players coming through. And it seems crazy that that World Cup in 2018 was so recent and England got to the semi-final and that was a popular squad. And yet you've got a group of players who are heading to their... F- first major tournament who weren't there in 2018 some of whom could be the stars of it so Phil Foden is probably the, the the most obvious one I don't even know if he qualifies to be a breakout star given that he he may well end this month as a Champions League winner and a Premier League winner and one of the stars of, of Man City's season uh, Mason Mount uh, as I mentioned he's so dependable and, and Gareth Southgate loves him so I think he'll play a key role and Declan Rice as well uh, I think it's brilliant that someone who doesn't play for one of the, the very biggest clubs in the world has managed to become one of the first names on the team sheet. He's started all 13 of his caps uh, in the last two years and he, he's really going to be crucial for England. Uh, whether or not Jordan Henderson is fit and alongside him is kind of a, a question, but Rice's emergence means that you'd be slightly less worried than you otherwise would be if uh, if Henderson isn't available. And then there's Sancho, of course, who's such a uh, such a big name. Bellingham as well, his teammate at Dortmund. Not nailed on to go, but given his performances in some of these big games in the Champions League, you wouldn't be surprised. Grealish, his inclusion's up in the air because of injury, but what an unbelievable season he was having with Villa. And then a couple of others, Reese James, Calvert-Lewin, Ollie Watkins, all of these guys, if they go to the Euros, will be in their first major tournament. So you have to say on the world stage, on the international stage, 
I think they count as breakout players, even if it feels like they're they're some of the most well-known players now in world football. Yeah, staggering squad depth, Ali, really is exciting times for England fans, even if the qualifiers themselves do tend to be greeted with a considerable degree of apathy. Um, now, this this final question, Ali, I say to all my guests, you can answer it with your head or you can answer it with your heart, but answering either with your head or your heart, Ali, how far will England go at the Euros this summer? Yeah, I struggle to go with my heart when I'm doing uh, when I'm doing serious things like this, Alistair. And so, with my head, and having looked at the path to, you know, the knockouts and the final earlier, I did lose a bit of confidence. I have to admit. Um, so I'm going to say quarter final exit for England, which will feel very, very familiar for England fans, uh, and I'm sure will cause a lot of uh, a lot of mirth north of the border. That's for sure, especially heading into <laughs> it as favourites. As I say, you know either path that England take if they finish first or second and uh, you know it's difficult for for me to imagine that they would finish third but let's say they finish first or second they're going to hit Spain or Germany or France or Portugal in the quarterfinal and I don't know so much about those those teams so I'll, I'll be listening closely to these previews to find out if they've got weaknesses as well I'm just not sure I back England at this stage with this manager to win more than one knockout game against the the top nations so I tell you what, I'll say quarter final with my head and semi final with my heart, and I'm just hoping that I'm underestimating just how good England's new stars are and how quickly they can get to grips with uh, tournament football. Ali Maxwell, it's been great having you on. Thank you for coming on and giving up your evening or some of your evening to speak to me. Thanks, guys. I think you do a great job, and it was brilliant to be a part of it. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you as well to you, the listener. Hopefully. You're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. Until next time, goodbye.